0: to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, c one Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. Today, I have a wonderful conversation to share with you as I talk with Ria Tajiri, a filmmaker and visual artist born in Chicago, Illinois. Ria got her BFA and MFA from the California Institute of the Arts before moving to New York City, where she became enmeshed in the art scene there. Her work has been shown at the Whitney Biennial, the New Museum, MoMA, the Guggenheim, and many more. Currently, she is an assistant professor in the Division of Theater, Film, and Media Arts at Temple University, where she teaches documentary production. I first learn about Ria through her film, History and Memory, an experimental video essay that deals with the mutable nature of one's remembrance of a place and community within the context of the Japanese internment during World War II. We talk about that, the purpose of documentation, forensic architecture, and what does it mean for a place to exist as fiction with cultural resonance? As usual, take care, stay safe, and I hope you enjoy this.
1: Um, okay, hopefully this it's will okay. work. <laughs> Anyway, but we were talking about, yeah. so I was asking you about the project, you know, that you're doing, which I'm really fascinated by. Because to me, it is about, well, first of all, family and, you know, kind of reclaiming things that have been lost. Yeah, yeah. And then it's about place, right? Houses. And I was explaining to you that story in my family, which is actually in one of my films. Um, hist- it's in History and Memory, but it has to do with, um, you know, that during the war, when my family was in camp, my father was in the army and his siblings were in camp, and, you know, his whole family was in camp. And they had a house that they had purchased, you know, it was their first time owning a house in San, in, uh, San Diego. He had to buy it in his name, because even though it was really for his mom, yeah. and it was their family house, because she couldn't own property. And so, you know, camp happened, uh-huh. they were all and he was in the army, he was drafted. Uh-huh. So he was serving in the army, his family was in camp. And they heard that the house was going to be um, taken over, that the army or the Navy wanted to extend their base and they wanted that land. And that neighborhood that this house was in was a, you know, black, brown, Asian community. And I had gone to the National Archives to do research to find out kind of a little bit about what happened. And there was documentation and documentation said, oh, this is a you know, whatever the area from blah, 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 to blah, blah, blah. It's basically, we've condemned Mm -hmm. this property. They're worthless shacks. And these are people's homes. But um, the Navy said, uh, we're taking this property under eminent domain. And um, because this is a military necessity, so anybody who's on this land, we're going to arrange to buy your property or buy your house, Mm -hmm. not buy the property, buy the house and move it. And so my family couldn't make the arrangements The the government wouldn't let them allow them a leave from camp to take care of this business. And so basically the house was taken and they don't know where it
2: went. That's so messed up.
1: <laughs> yeah. And inside the house and inside the closet, mm-hmm. there were all of these belongings, including a lot of, you know, the artifacts that they brought from Japan, mm. a scroll, a samurai sword. And, you know, but we don't know what happened. And so years later, of course, after I made History and Memory, I went to do the research and found the documentation right. and actually found out the location uh, where their house stood because those streets were still intact. And I went to the naval base and took some photos and documented it. And it's just fascinating that now we have the technology, like you were talking about doing a 3D scan, yeah, yeah. doing photogrammetry. So I'm totally fascinated, you know, by that and um, the potential You know, for being able to go to plays and reconstitute something, an object, you know. Yeah, I
0: think. Right,
2: right, right. I mean, I think the first time I saw this, I think there was like an Iranian woman who was uh, using phonogrammetry to, through pictures, recreate all the um, artifacts that were destroyed during the Iraq war and sort of like again that sort of reclaiming of objects and that was the first time it came across i always felt like it was beyond my my ability to do that Mm. maybe it was laziness i'm not sure but now that i'm actually looking at i think Mm -hmm. because before the the recording we were talking about like the project i wanted to do was sort of like this huge house that my family grew up in in southern china and then i didn't think filming there really made sense so then the next best thing that first came to my mind was sort of uh, photogrammetry but i don't know how it turned out it might all fail. But, you know, I think that's part of the process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really worth, you know, a shot and trying and then, you know, who knows over time, maybe you could just keep trying different things and it'll happen. What exactly is photogrammetry? Because I'm not sure I know the whole...
2: So it's like you basically take a whole lot of pictures and then you need the pictures to overlap a certain amount. And then through that, the computer or the algorithm for the programs that use photogrammetry can figure out where the camera Mm. is Mm -hmm. placement-wise from where you took the picture. And then from that, so you have like a location and then you have a picture. And then so it can then therefore create a 3D image based off that right so as opposed to like using a laser to scan it it's using the position of your camera which is calculating to then basically uh-huh. work backwards and create a 3d model
1: yeah so that's kind of like what um what is that art group from the UK? Is it like forensic architecture? Is that what they're doing?
2: They do a lot of that, yeah. Do you yeah, know that group? Yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Like they'll go to a crime scene and yeah, they'll yeah, reconstitute yeah. all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But you can like, you, as you can imagine, you can use it in a lot of different ways. You can take it from film footage, right? If you have a moving camera, you can splice up the film into different images and therefore recreate a 3d scene so i think that's what a lot of forensic architecture does in addition to also having probably a standing group of actual 3d modelers yeah i knew someone who like did a 3d model of the house in the shining through the film because you have again like a moving image so they recreated the house in the shining which is also like sort of an interesting sort of idea but yeah
1: oh that's amazing yeah it's kind of interesting you know to think about like you know it's a fiction right yeah but that place has such a you know, has already had such deep resonance as a cultural, I guess, cultural object, right? And then going sort of backwards and saying, now we're going to reconstitute it in this way, you know? Yeah. Well, I like thinking about it in terms of um, documentary. I feel, you know, conceptually, there's so much that is like lost to us. And we and the whole aim of documentary, of course, is like this, you know, sense of documentation. And then what does it mean to go to be able, you know, to go backwards in time? And, yeah, I I actually had uh, the idea. I didn't really know what technology you were supposed to use for this, but Uh I was making a installation a few years ago. And I had done, you know, it was basically about a house that doesn't exist anymore, but it was a place, it was a hostel where Japanese Americans were in Philadelphia, where a family ran a hostel for Japanese Americans getting out of camp. Okay. And they would come to Philadelphia to get jobs and they would stay in this hostel. And so I talked to a few people, like, what do you remember? What was in the house? and they all talked about this one telephone okay okay and they said oh there was a pay phone on the first floor I forget the second floor and that's where we could call make our calls you know okay and I I got really got into that oh yeah telephone uh-huh. and then they also talked about this gong they called it a gong it was actually a series of concentric mm-hmm. bells some one of the family members had that yeah so we got a hold of it And we photographed it and we used it in a video,
0: which
1: was great. But at the time, what I really wanted to do was make a 3D model reproduction of that telephone. And I finally found a photograph where the telephone was in the background and, you know, from the house and everything. And I was I wanted to do a 3D model of it, but I didn't have enough resource and time. And we have that some of that stuff at, at my university, but. I didn't have the time or the resource to figure it out, but I thought about that. So anyway, I mean, obviously people have been thinking along these lines. And I guess it's, you know, sort of like what... what right, do,
2: what are these objects of yeah. memory and history sort yeah. of mean? But I guess like thinking yeah. about... So you're talking about documentation. You're talking about like, you know, the purpose of documentation. So I guess when you made history and memory, were you thinking of documentation?
1: I was yeah you know, I think at that point, and it's interesting to go back in time, you know there wasn't a lot of available documentation of the camp period. Most of it was fragments mm-hmm. or this sort of body of footage that the Army Signal Corps had taken, yeah that was in the National Archives, the U.S. National Archives, that was very staged. And that was sort of fascinating, the artificiality of it. Mm. And then there were people who smuggled cameras into camp. You know, there was a famous photographer, Toyo Miyatake. I discovered somebody named David Tatsuno, who had smuggled a super eight camera and then I was able to get that footage, but mm-hmm. there was just very little. Right. And even like thinking about Poston and me trying to imagine what did it look like? What was that? You know, and I, <laughs> had, I had found some photos taken by the army yeah, of yeah. them putting a barracks, but there was very little. Okay. Now, of course, because of these resources digitizing and there's a, you know, it turns out because there was a lot of documentation from both personal archives and you know, people taking photos and then, you know, there were a lot of there's just so much camp lore that you know just to say one thing about what I was talking about was that what happened is so this new I don't know how new it is, but Densho is this this nonprofit, it's kind of genius actually. They started this online archive and they figured out how to link all these other archives that existed and also to put their collections, they must have done a lot of scanning put them online. And now there's this a like huge database of material relating to Japanese American history, to camp, just amazing. My nephew goes in there and has found like images that we didn't know existed. It blows my mind. You know, he has found photos of my father from like the local newspaper or he found some images of my aunt in japan and it was so funny because she would talk about that time and i could tell it was special but she couldn't quite describe why and in looking at the photos it looks like she was just having the time of her life like partying like you know carrying on she had all these boyfriends (laughs) There were all pictures of her surrounded by men, like, you know, like all like, hey, you know, like it was kind of a goof. But she had said, oh, yeah, you know, I had a lot of boyfriends because at that time, you know, it wasn't serious. And you just had like five or six boyfriends. <sighs> well, there's pictures of her with five or six guys and they're all doing funny things. Like one of them is kneeling and one of them is, you know, yeah. offering to light her cigarette. And it's just like, What? There's another photograph of her in a boat and she's, her shoes are off and she's leaning back. And then she's with these two guys. She has a parasol. There's another picture. Of she's walking down the street and she is smoking. Yeah. And she's with this other woman. And and there's a guy by her side who's very handsome. And just looks so like glamorous, but also kind of like carefree Mm -hmm. and party, uh, party time. And it's just like, you know, which would have been looked down on in the States. But she felt free to kind of, you know, hey, uh, no one's looking. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just really wild. And um, I really like it's like this lost piece of her life. Right. right you know, right, and I right. think, um, right, right. um you know, I, I don't know. It, it just brings you in touch with something that you weren't maybe supposed to see. Yeah,
2: you know? yeah. That was
1: her, maybe her secret life. But, you know, she was in Japan, you know, yeah. but now we, we know. And it was funny because even her kids were like shocked. And it turns out that this was from a private collection from a friend that she had in Japan who had uploaded them. You know, I mean, it's been years, right? So... Do you know what I mean? Like she didn't even have these pictures. My aunt didn't have them. Someone else took them and then just put them up there. So it was pretty wild. Um, and
2: you were, were you able to talk to your aunt about this?
1: No, she's passed oh. away. But, uh, okay. you know, before she died, I did. I was really fascinated by her and I did ask her some questions. Yeah. And she, she did kind of. Say stuff, but I don't know, you know, like she probably didn't feel like she could really say stuff.
2: You yeah. Know? Yeah.
1: And the pictures say right, a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> you yeah. know? And so it's really, really, I find it really fascinating because sometimes um, people have posted things of me on uh-huh. Facebook that I have no recollection yeah. that they were taken. Yeah. And it's a very disconcerting thing about like, <sighs> I don't, when was, what was it, what happened? Yeah. But it, it's almost like this secret part of your life. Yeah, yeah. It's someone else remembers yeah, or someone yeah, else yeah. knows about that you don't remember. Yeah, yeah. And so I felt like I got a peek into some secret part of, you know, it was her private life.
0: Right, right. You know,
1: And also, like, I think my mom... For some reason, she would never say exactly why, but kind of looked down on her a little bit and maybe was judging think her. think because
0: of
2: like these photos, like what she was doing? I don't
1: think she knew those photos. I don't think oh, anybody okay. knew those okay. photos existed. Okay. But my mom probably knew or heard that maybe, you know, she was a party. She was like, you know, and that was kind of not proper. You know, maybe she was like partying a bit yeah. and carrying on and, you know, which I don't know, but I, I just find it really interesting and great. Because the picture that we have of Nisei women is always, well, at least from my my mother, the way my mother presents it, is about being proper, being a proper lady and Mm -hmm. all these kinds of rules and, you know, conduct. But we know that, you know, that that kind of double standard of the sexism of the time, but it's it's really hard to visualize this if you don't see it, you know.
2: So these photos you never talked about in the film. This happened after the film was made, right?
1: Yeah. This is like years later. So... you know I made that film from 1988 yeah. till it was finished in 1991 right right I think it was five years so whatever five years back 19 it's probably 1988 to about 91 yeah maybe not maybe 1987 but 19 you know yeah, yeah but there wasn't a lot available but now I'm just saying like because of Densho like maybe within the last five six maybe I don't even know when Den Show became super active but there's so much available right, right. and it's all that stuff that I wanted to get my hands on. And even when I go to Google searches, I'm seeing lots of images of posting that I wanted to see that, like I desired, you know, I really, in my imagination right. wanted to know yeah. what did certain spaces look like, you know, and now i can see them, you know, and what does that mean for, you know, imagination and memory and kind of a restorative process, right? Because that history at one point was so erased and so not, visible.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That it felt like a loss, but now you can see them and you sort of feel like, okay, i feel like I'm being restored. I feel like something is being given to me that I, I didn't have access that now I feel more complete about and that I can own it, that I can own an experience and I can, you know, because for instance, like you can go back into the American archives and see people, you know, white people in the suburbs in the 40s or, what? you know, whatever, the war, the Mm -hmm. the very, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. the war effort, you know, from the U.S. perspective. But you won't see the camps or at one point you wouldn't see the camps as part of that war story. Mm -hmm. And now we have that, you know, so that's kind of.
2: Yeah, big thing. And yeah. But, and I think that's what I liked about history and memory when I saw it. I, I mean, I saw it like I think a few months ago when we first talked. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think what drew me to it was sort of like the combination of the, like your present day sort of narration coupled with your past recollection, coupled with, uh, which, and, and as we know, like memory is like this. Mm-hmm sort of not so solid um, thing it's constantly in flux right and then and then like you said you have these images you have these documentations Mm -hmm. which supposedly are are in some ways more stable as a form of memory but also decontextualized and so we require the sort of memory to kind of contextualize these factual things and i kind of liked all the interplay that was Mm -hmm. happening when i was watching that that video
1: Mm -hmm. oh you said that so beautifully about you know sort of decontextualized or having these objects that you don't quite know how they fit in or having memories that you kind of know something happened but then you need the solid information to prove that there's something was real about that yeah that's very profound and i think that just continues you know and it's interesting in this sort of age of technology too that yeah. we're able to prove some of these things or find them more
2: so i guess like Did you feel like you reached, a, I guess a semi not dead end, but I guess conceptually you kind of took a break from, I guess that part of your history. And I noticed that the videos after you kind of went into somewhat of a different direction, I mean, obviously all sort of tangentially related, but it started expanding and a lot more. And I'm just curious how that sort of happened. I asked that because I feel like I'm still mining it for, for myself
1: uh, yeah yeah no it's a really it's a really good question because I I think and I, I'm just pausing and just retrospectively to try to remember I can remember being very confused uh-huh. I can you know about which direction to go yeah. and I can remember being fortunate enough that there were these opportunities to kind of like okay well there's this thing mm-hmm. called open call ITVS maybe i mm-hmm. Can mm-hmm. make a big movie, you know, and and also the politically, what does it mean for, to be able to have to make a feature a thirty five millimeter film? Like, I remember talking about that with an office mate. Shuli Chang, and she said, "Yeah, you know, the, you know, like Ooh. not having access to like right. the mainstream mm-hmm. format, the you know celluloid, right?" And and then there was this opportunity, so kind of going that direction, and also really feeling like, yeah. oh, I maybe I'll come back to thinking about memory, but it, you know, I kind of went and sat on a sidetrack, but uh, feeling a little bit derailed when my mom got sick, and I was doing a lot of family care, but you know, interestingly <laughs> enough, I mean. You know, what is my mother afflicted with? Well, she has dementia, which is all about memory, right? So, you know, it's just, I don't know. And it's nice to talk about this with you, to hear you also thinking about these things and to hear, you know, your take on and your experiences and, and how you're mining this and thinking about you know technology so it's great you know to hear but i do think
2: there's a limit for me mm. at least i still see a limit to technology yeah i feel like i think that's why it took me so long to think about using photogrammetry but in the end i still think it's about the story though I'm so drawn I so drawn up to the story.
1: Yeah, you can't. There's a danger, I think, too, in purely, you know, it's so seductive, right? Yeah. And it's really, ultimately, it's the concept. It's not the technology or what, you know, technology can do. It's like really about the concept. Yeah, yeah. And what do you do with that? And the concept or the story, mm-hmm. um, what do mm-hmm. you do with that? What I find, like, interesting is for someone like you or what you were describing is to really go into, you know, a particular point in time and say, well, how can I use this to access this thing, which is, I think. It's not just you, right? I think it's something very personal to you, but it's something we all sort of would love to do in some way, right? All of us have, I think, feel that about something in our life. And I think there's political and personal intersections there, which are both really profound and very meaningful and important. I don't know, I think we were talking, somebody was talking about the project that Forensic Architecture does and, you know, where are the shortcomings? I mean, there's both a kind of amazement, right? You're like, oh, wow, you know, but then there's a sort of shortcoming as well, you know, so.
2: In your mind, what is the shortcoming of forensic
0: architecture?
1: Um, oh God, (laughs) if I can remember. Is that many? (laughs) Um, No, it's just, I can't remember what we were talking about when, I mean, you know, it's like I have to kind of stop and go, "Hmm, what is that thing?
2: I mean, for me, it was just sort of like, I think they're tackling such really, really complicated, sensitive issues. Yeah. And it's. I think it's sort of, yeah. um, you know, the issue with most sort of socially engaged art and art activism, which is sort of that once you enter that realm, you risk putting a sort of purpose to the artwork as if the artwork should solve this problem. And a lot of the yeah. times art yeah. is not necessarily the best way to go about solving. Although the Whitney Biennial, the recent one with Cantor, like that in some ways was, I guess, a success, right? With the whole they campaigned to, to kick that board member out. But a lot of the other issues, like I've seen their works. I'm like, oh, this mm. is like amazing. But like the issue that they're tackling still, mm. it didn't seem to change much. Right. From that
1: perspective. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a whole other thing. But um there's something a little bit disturbing about like, I think I even asked this. I uh, think they, they did a QA. and I think I was in a, a session with okay. them. I think it was something about like, well, who are you working for? Because are you hired, Do you know? And so if you're hired by the lawyers and the legal right, team right, right. and, you know, I mean, and so you have this capability. And so but then you're using this technology at the service of a legal right, right. Uh, system. Right. I'm just trying to just unpack that for myself. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. And are you kind of a gun for hire and who are you yeah, serving? Yeah. And also, you know, all representation, right? All forms of representation at some point have to be criticized, right? Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, whether yeah. it was the gaze and, or cameras yeah, and yeah. how we use cameras. And now it's this, you know, how are we, you know, you're able to reconstruct something within a time, but we're, it's a particular model that you're serving. Like you're trying to defend the argument that's instructed by, a, mm-hmm. you know, either the prosecutor or the defense, but, you know, they're basically trying to build it around that. And so, um, who, they, who, who,
2: who were they uh, hired yeah.
1: by? He said that they were, that they sometimes work as a work for hire yeah. and that, yes, they were, you know, that they do different <laughs> kinds of work and different, you know, models, yeah. but that in that case that was, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it wasn't completely, and, and I didn't get into the deeper questions you know, around that. But I think that was my basic question. I was just starting to think it out myself. And then, you know, it was over. Yeah, yeah. The thing was, it was like the last question of the session, I think. So I didn't get to get much deeper. Yeah. But then, you know, after that, that was my thought, you know, yeah. but it's, it's so new. And I think we're all just trying to figure this out, you know, like, yeah. how can it serve us? And
2: yeah, yeah. I always felt like they're like this mysterious group that suddenly uh, yeah. accumulated a whole lot of cultural capital really, really quickly. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah, and I met like a Princeton grad, like undergraduate mm-hmm. who studied computer science, and he was like, he was um reached out to by forensic architecture to work for them, like right out of undergrad, and I was like, I was yeah. like, whoa, this is like yeah. Google sort of shit, yeah, all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think that was what part of the other part of what we were thinking about was, you know, that technology is extremely, yeah. Uh, you know it's expensive. I mean, there's a money and funding. Yeah, you know yeah. that it takes to drive that. So where is that? Yeah. You know what does that do? That's capital. Yeah. So how does that figure in? You know to this and then and, and then you know scooping people out of school. Yeah, you know the talent. Yeah.
2: Do all uh, of the it's that work yeah so i guess like now like going back to the idea of like you know where did you go from the history and memory i mean one of the things that must have been really i would imagine at that time when it came out you know it got a lot of press it was in the whitney Biennial, and i'm sure like kind of like what you're saying you didn't quite know maybe what to do with all of that because i felt like if i if i suddenly got all this Mm. press for something that was sort of personal narrative i might feel a little weird and Mm -hmm. kind of do something different all of a sudden right
1: well, it's confusing because it also is sort of personal material. Right, right. And then it feels a little weird, like kind of mining your own story. Yeah, And mm-hmm. also, you know, who, am I performing this right, for, right. for yes. a white audience? Am I performing this sort of victimization? Mm-hmm. I don't think history and memory is about victimization, but it did feel like, you know, it was a tricky thing to yeah, balance. Yeah.
2: Well, it wasn't victimization in like obvious sense, but it was, I, it could have been seen in the sense that like, oh, you're looking at this sort of struggle and then like it's being in some ways fetishized by the institution, mm-hmm. right? And especially at that time, And now still like the institution is looking at it from a white gaze.
1: Yeah. And so that was weird. So then I wanted to try different models. I mean, the other thing I think I felt at the time was I never went to film school. So I was trying to learn different ways of working with moving image or working, you know, in cinema. Yeah. And I did feel in a way that like... I lost some momentum after I made strawberry feels like, I, you know, I have to kind of take a break or I was doing other things. And then I was kind of working to kind of recapture it. So I never fe- hmm. felt or hmm. that a lot of things were ex- explored or as complete as I would have wanted. Right. And now I'm, it's interesting to be looking back maybe at this point and thinking about that and where would I want to, what would I want to do? How would I want to do things differently right now?
2: Yeah. And so, what did you realize that you want would want to do differently?
1: Oh, I don't know. I oh, can't really okay, say. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's still something I'm I'm yeah. thinking about. But um, it's an interesting time. I think, like, we're just really changing so rapidly. How people consume media, how the technology is yeah. rapidly evolving. You know, even this discussion we're having about photogrammetry. Yeah. you know, three D printing and photogrammetry. You know, something that just you couldn't do and, you know, in the beginning yeah. of my career and like, oh, wow. But yeah, just thinking about a lot of yeah. different things.
2: Um, yeah. Like I was talking to an artist and we were like, yeah, just thinking about like kids growing up these days and kind of not knowing a pre-digital world, not knowing a, mm-hmm. a world where like, you yeah, a camera yeah. and a video camera and like books all on like a device the size of your hand and sort of what does that mean? And what does it mean also for human interaction and like also like phone calls, how mm-hmm. like, you know, people prefer texting, which I know a lot of like younger mm-hmm. kids don't like phone calls as much. The idea of like thinking on your feet and talking it's to scary. someone um, versus like take, t- taking, yeah. Yeah. but we learned how to do it, I guess, when we yeah. had to, right? Like, you know, dialing yeah. and No, I,
1: like- I, I, I really value, I really value talking and talking live it's really funny because recently I had this experience. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, no, but no, I just have okay. to say this because I realized maybe when I started teaching yeah. that this was happening, that, that students did not know how to cold call and, and have an interaction <laughs> with the business or whatever, because this is something that we I had to develop, yeah. you know, was yeah. phone skills. I had to do a lot of business yeah, on yeah, the phone yeah. when I worked for companies, you know, yeah, on yeah. and on yeah. and on, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But recently, somebody asked me to give some advice to somebody, a young person. Uh And I realized the young person wanted me to write everything down in an email. And I wanted to have a conversation because it was a lot of, to me, a lot of labor to answer these questions and to write them out as a written format because it was complicated. It wasn't, you know, and I realized that that person did not want to have a real conversation. They want, you know, I mean, that was intimidating. And that was like, oh, no, I don't have time to do that. That's what they said. And I was like, I just kind of like, oh. And I thought on the one hand, it felt, you know, in the, in the first instance, it felt like, well, that's (laughs) really disrespectful. And then on the second instance, like, you know what, this is a generational thing. It's not personal. You can't take it that way. And it's more intimidating and and difficult.
2: But that brings up an interesting question, which is sort of like, yes, it's generational, but like, I think the way I read your, what you were describing was sort of like, it's more easier to me in person because the answers are complicated and trying to figure out the intention of the question wasn't clear. And so your answer would depend on the actual intention of the question, which may not have been spelled out for you, which would... Part you know, of it
1: was that, but part of it was also, it was almost like I'd have to write an essay yeah, yeah, to answer some of right, these questions. right? You know, right. And you're asking me to say answer something very complicated and I would have to, yeah, part of it was context and part of it was you know, trying to have a back and forth so that I could get clearer on what is the actual question here. And then trying to, you know, then parse that out and then also just be, yeah, more deliberate in my answer. But you're asking me to write an essay about, you know, you're asking me something that's really hard. Well, how did you do that? Why was this? And why was this like this back in 1991? Well, do you want me to give, you know, I mean, like that's yeah, just yeah, really yeah. a lot to ask yeah. somebody to write it down, and but, and it was. But I think yeah, the thing that, that
2: was too hard fascinates me is like, are they expecting a short answer? You know, like or like if they were asked this of their peer, right, as a normal interaction, because they're so afraid of a sort of face to face, you know, thinking about context and thinking about body language. Like, mm. you know, the thing that kind of percolates in my mind is sort of like, is there then a constant? semi miscommunication or laziness to not understand full intent in these sort of interactions, right? I mean we can think about like Twitter, we can think about like all these sort of like trolling mm. of comments on all the different forums and mm. but that's sort of what, what kind of came to my mind and I was as I was thinking that because they don't want that, which then leads to a sort of potential misunderstanding, right?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's a funny kind of lack of, I'd say, commitment. Yeah. You know, I mean, which I'm also guilty of, you know, if I engage yeah, in social yeah, media, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, there's a lack of commitment about being really yeah. specific or be, you know, so I feel that even with my, you know, from things I've observed from watching young people, which at this point are students of mine, there is a kind of lack of commitment in texting or it's a communications issue, a lack of commitment, a lack of yeah, attention yeah. or intention, right? When you text or sometimes even yeah. email, you're expecting a quick answer you want to have a kind of frothy, you know, not very deep yeah, conversation, yeah. or maybe you're afraid to, yeah. you know, and maybe you're afraid to commit to certain kinds of communication. Right. And so, yeah, you keep it very surface and yeah, I, it's something I'm thinking about myself about like, I don't write and I need to, and I notice now everything is about writing as an artist and I didn't have to be that way before, but now it, it kind of is. And, but I don't write like about, You know, people write about their work. I mean, I write about my work in grant proposals and and those kinds of artist statement things, but yeah, yeah, I don't really take the time to write about you know. So and I, it's a different kind of commitment, and I'm thinking about those, that way of articulating and the kind of commitment to articulation and that I um, that's something that I'm working on now. But so it's an interesting. It's interesting, like these forms or formats that have evolved and what they mean. You know, I, I see this thing. I don't go on Twitter a lot, but then I, I I notice that some people have taken to writing these like really long, like, you know, multi yeah. uh, post Twitter things, you know, like number one. And, they, you know, to so get more complicated You know
2: about You heard about that movie That was just made out Of a Twitter post It's called Zola It was like um, Mm -hmm. It's like I think it's directed By Jeremy O'Harris Who did a slave play But like Yeah it was like Someone wrote like An entire story on Twitter And then it got made Into a movie
0: But
1: Ah.
2: Zola Yeah yeah I haven't seen it yet I think it came out Like a month ago The Twitter story Is also like Really really great Like I think in terms of Like in terms of a format And in terms of like How Uh it exists But yeah
1: yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I mean, there's there's sometimes, it's funny because I know, I remember one point yeah, um, yeah. very early on in texting, I wrote somebody a dream in a text form, okay. you know, in through text yeah, yeah. format. And I, it was something about the form was against, I mean, it was like on an old, it was before smartphones,
0: yeah. Yeah. you
1: know, so it was on an old, you know, whatever you call yeah, it, flip yeah. phone. But the format was sort of like at that point, you know, that nobody wrote these like long. The format seemed to be anti the kind of dream space that I was writing in. And so sometimes I think it's the same thing, like when the format doesn't lend itself to that, but then you you somehow hijack it or hack it into doing it and and containing it. And then it's kind of amazing. Right. You can do something. You're figuring that out what that is. But I guess I'm not not really somebody who uses it enough to really understand yeah. all that
2: but I still great. don't think I really know how to use Twitter.
1: I'm really impressed when people like do these weird things like oh. That's I
2: great. actually feel like yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's just not my medium. So I I just don't use it. Yeah. No. It doesn't feel natural the way that no. it exists for me at least. But yeah, so I guess right now you're working on um like you, you were saying earlier a, a video on your mom and and sort of dementia and is that How is that going?
1: Well, it was, yeah, it's been difficult. I was thinking about this today. I started it very soon after my mother died. And basically the film is an amalgamation of bits and pieces of footage and things that I shot over the years Uh when I was taking care of her, which is roughly around 16, 18 years. And I never expected really to do anything with it, but it was just, you know, my thing is to capture, you know, that's just sort of like what I do, you know, I capture Mm -hmm. things. It was something that I saw my dad do. He was always taking pictures and, you know, he was into documentary photographers. And so, you know, I started using like a handy cam Mm -hmm. and just recording things and never thinking that I would make anything out of it. I don't know. At some point I decided or people and also urged me or, or encouraged me to make a film about my mom. And about the experience of being a Mm -hmm. caregiver, because it had taken up so much of my life. So I think maybe around 20, she died in 2015, maybe around 2013, I decided to really make it more intentional. So I started to do more deliberate shooting. And then, you know, she passed away in 2015. And then I was pushed or I accepted the challenge. I shouldn't say it was like, oh, I just, you know, didn't have any say in it. And I, I tried to immediately start working on a film about yeah. her. It, it was really too soon because I really didn't have the perspective. I think in a way I kind of took a lot of input, which is not my way to do things. Okay, I took a lot of outside input in trying to formulate a film mm. and it it just mm-hmm. never felt quite right to me. And I kept stopping And trying to start again, and I think enough time has passed that Mm. I need to finish the film because I don't like having things hanging Mm. in my head. I took some time off to deliberately finish it. I wanted to get into the world, but I thought that I was in a different place emotionally, and then I was very Mm. sort of surprised about how difficult it was to reenter, you know, But at the same time, I feel on a positive side, I feel more clear about the material and what it's doing and how to use it than I had in the past. And I think some things I'm able to see more clearly, which is great. Um, Still, it's difficult emotionally. But I I kind of came up with this idea that I would just, sometimes I have a tendency to really kind of go crazy and work
0: Hmm. six,
1: seven days a week. I decided, no, it's very difficult to do that to yourself now. Yeah. And no one should do that. You know, I don't, shouldn't say no one should do this, but you know, I certainly shouldn't do it anymore. I shouldn't take that model. It's too hard. It's brutal. So I'm working like five days a week. And then on the weekends, I'm
2: really forcing
1: myself to go and do like something completely unrelated, which in this case is being in your water, being on water, boating, kayaking. Yeah. yeah, Which I used to do as a kid and, or when I was in Louisville, I did a lot of it. And now I'm kind of work out the abs, or and then you know be on water and just uh, yeah, like just the challenge of it, and uh, you know editing is so uh, well in this case. You know you're in this so unhealthy. You're sitting at this computer all day, and it's flat screen, and so you need to be. I know, I yeah. know.
2: My wrists, yeah. my wrists and back are. Yeah, me.
1: yeah. And I've worked out the ergonomics over the years and have all these tricks. Yeah. 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 Different things.
2: Do you stand or sit?
1: Uh, I have a standing desk. In this office, I don't use it. I mean, I did use it sometimes uh, when I was editing a while back, but I don't know. I'm not using it. I'm using these funny little discs that you're, they're sort of, you can put a little bit of air in it. So I have that. Okay. I I also at one point had one of these, you know, those giant balls that they use, exercise balls.
2: Yeah. I heard those don't work that well.
1: Oh, they, well, you have to have them in a holder. Like, so there's a chair that they make that they fit inside. It's a rolling chair. (laughs) It's weird, I know, but it's only like $75, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I used to use that, but I gave it away when I was moving, which was stupid, and I never bought another. So now I'm just using this little flat disc and, the, and a chair, and then I just get up every hour and walk yeah. around and um, do some yeah, stretches. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty simple and basic it's yeah. been working it's it is hard on the body editing is yeah, very hard on the how body
2: they, i don't know i don't know how they yeah, did it in the definitely. past with-
1: oh you know a lot of editors in film when i i don't know if it's still the same but you know when i was coming up in the i used to, you know i have things online or i worked with an editor yeah. on my my feature you know it's not a healthy they were always like complaining they were all like their yeah. wrists were backs were messed up they gained yeah. weight you're in a dark room Actually, my edit room, I deliberately have um, natural light, you know, window. You're not supposed to.
2: I can't work at night anymore. (laughs) My eyes won't let me.
1: Oh, my God. I think since COVID and and all that Zoom time, I cannot work at night. Yeah, yeah. It just kills me. It really hurts. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wanted to ask oh, you about yeah. Shanghai. What does it feel like to be there? Or how does uh, it feel? I only hear little bits and pieces from people, my students who've, who've yeah. been there or they're from there. So I'm just curious how you. Yeah.
2: To me, it doesn't feel like the rest of China in the same way that like New York yeah. and LA doesn't feel like the rest of the US or or like you know <laughs> Berlin as as, uh-huh. as 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 Germany uh-huh. or London as UK. It's like is very international. Um, it's uh, easier to speak English there. Although, of course, like not everyone speaks English, but in the same way yeah. the other, uh, like, you know, Berlin does with German, but, you know, lots more Western shops. Mm. And then it's, you know, it has a history of a uh, long history with an expat community there. So like, you go there and like, mm. I know a lot of people who just who, you know, work in Shanghai, and they don't, Feel the need to speak uh, like of Chinese because the expat community is so strong there, and mm-hmm. so large, and it's easier now yeah. to do that, especially as the internet kind of connects people. But I feel like in other other Chinese towns and cities mm-hmm. and places I've been to, like Shanghai, like it felt like a, a international city. <laughs> How's that? I haven't been to Beijing, so I don't know. I hear Beijing's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. expat community is also very strong, but and you can get a lot of Western international foods there but yeah. yeah and then all the artists yeah. are moving to shanghai because that's where you know in moving in in, uh-huh. in line with sort of like the top-down yeah. decision making for, for some reason the chinese government is wants the art to develop in shanghai so they've just been pouring tons of money there and as i you know i was talking to some chinese artists and they're just like well you know you follow where the money goes and then mm. the government sort of rewards you for that so You know, take
0: advantage Mm -hmm. of that. That's Mm -hmm. what
1: they're saying. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, I'm sorry, this is really kind of bad, but is your family from Hong Kong Uh, or Taiwan? So,
2: my mom's side of the family is largely from the Guangdong province, southern China. And then, throughout the years, Mm -hmm. different members uh, moved to Hong Kong or to the US, and then a few of them moved to shanghai Mm -hmm. and so that's sort of the connection with my aunt so my mom my mom's Mm -hmm. i guess cousin that side of the family ended up going to the suburbs Mm -hmm. of shanghai and then eventually to shanghai the city center so for that reason they speak both like cantonese mandarin and shanghainese um and then my Dads, side of the family. As I understand it, we're all from Hong Kong. And then different parts of them moved to uh, the U.S. and Canada.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you grew up? I grew up in uh, the U.S.
2: Miami. I was born in Long Beach, California. Right.
1: <laughs> okay, so then that was because I was like thinking about this. So I'm just wondering for you what it means for you to kind of be in, you know, Shanghai and kind of like because you grew up in the U.S. So returning back to, you know, having you know, this place that. Ancestral yeah. In some
2: place. ways, I, I think like, I think what I was telling you earlier was sort of like, I was curious about it, but again, at this point, the connection is quite far, right? Cause it's my aunt who I just met since moving mm-hmm. to China. Right. I didn't know her wow. too well before wow. then. And then now it's owned by, like, her distant relative, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's more of a mm-hmm. shock, I think, within the Guangdong province, within Guangzhou and that whole area and, and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mean culture shock?
2: Well, that too, but more just sort of, like, imagine, because, like, you know, like, I visited the school that my mom grew up in, right? And sort of, like, I think, to me, uh, that's a, yeah. more of a closer personal connection than the mm-hmm. Shanghai one. But there, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just right. more like proximity and the people who I know versus, versus. I mean, if I knew like my mom's side of the family from Shanghai more, like I think, um, it would be, but I mean like I visited Shanghai, mm-hmm. um, when I was like a little, little, little kid, like, I don't, but I don't even remember that. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. But I mean, to go back or to go to a place where you know yeah. there's some family connection yeah. or stories and you know you're sort of like coming in as sort of uh, once removed or the displaced or you know displaced by immigration but you know how does that feel to you know discover something oh like oh that is my aunt's house how does that how Uh, does that feel for you I
2: don't know I'm not sure I have the words to describe it I think like a mixture of weird fascination I think a lot of it I think probably the most accurate word would be just frustration in the sense I can't access it through language, you know, I think that's sort of why I'm trying really mm. hard to learn mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mandarin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why I'm trying to learn the Chinese because I think that's the biggest roadblock yeah. right now.
1: I mean, I I went to my mother's ancestral home. Yeah, yeah. Because we had those connections back, you know, going back in generations. And it's like my mom never wanted to go to Japan. She was afraid, or she felt. I don't really know. It was complicated.
2: Why did your family move from Japan to the U.S.?
1: You know, on on my mom's side, it was because of, you know, jobs. Um, It was at a time, you know, during that point in Japan when the feudal system was changing and they didn't, you know, her family was very poor and there was just more opportunity in California. So people were kind of migrating. They were saying, oh, there's these opportunities, there's land, you Mm can farm, and the idea is that you'd go there, you'd send money home, you know, maybe you'd return home and that's kind of what happened. But I did get a chance to go after I made history and memory, which is kind sort of great because that film provided the opportunity for me to go to Japan. So, so you showed
2: that film in Japan?
1: Yeah. I showed it at Yamagata, which is a real honor. It's a documentary film festival, very, very renowned. Yeah. But I, I got to go and I got to go to the ancestral home where my great 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 grandmother grew up well actually my grandmother grew up and um they so beautiful this really old thatched roof in the middle of the country and but i is that thing too where there was the language broke down i had a translator yeah
2: but it's not the same and the
1: whole trip was not the same and the trip was weird and the guy was a little funny and <sighs> But, you know, most of what you could take in is sort of like the way I approach it is like there's the verbal layer that is communication. And then there's this other layer that is just the sort of pre-verbal, right? Just seeing things that you can't access through language, but you just take it in, you know, cues. Because like people would say like... Oh, you're so American. Like, this is a friend of mine in the U.S. who's Japanese from Japan. She's, oh, you're
0: yeah. so, <laughs>
1: you're so American. Or yeah. other people, oh, you're so American. You don't really, you can't, you know, you don't. But when I went there, there yeah. was so much there for me yeah, yeah. that I couldn't describe that was so familiar. yeah. But I don't know how to explain it to people. Like, yeah, it yeah. was the way people look, the gestures, the eyes, what people, how, you know, it was body language. Yeah. I completely yeah. absorbed that and said, that's so familiar. I see where this comes from now, you know, but I can't, how do you, you know, it's just hard to describe it. And when I went to that family home, it was so uh, emotional and this level, and they wanted to talk about all sorts of, there was one cousin who was really weird and he just wanted to talk about money and income and Whether I was a double income earner and no kids and blah, 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 you know, just weird stuff. And all I was interested in was like looking at the texture of cloth and napkins and how people were sitting and this little kid who was staring at me and that the fact that they had a fire pit in the middle of the house, just old fashioned, just like in a Ozu movie or something, you know, I was just like, oh, my God, you know. Um, that they had a uh, cattle attached to the side of their house, you know, a little stall with a cattle and under a roof, just weird stuff, you know. I wanted, and they were yeah. embarrassed because they didn't have plumbing. And I was like, "Wow, yeah, yeah. you know, that's kind of interesting. It's a farmhouse, a real farmhouse." Anyway, on and on yeah. and on, you know. What was
2: the reception um, of your film in Japan?
1: I think it was well received. It was shown in a sidebar, and it was very formal the way it was presented. Yeah. I mean, people came up and talked to me, but it was very through, you know, through a very kind of formality and respect. And so I honestly don't know if they were just being respectful out of form or if they really. I mean, I think they did because they talked about the ideas in the film a lot. I just think I was so overwhelmed and not fully present because it was just like, oh, you know, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a great yeah.
2: No, I'm, I mean, I asked yeah. because it's sort of like my experience in China, sort of like this kind of curiosity of my interest in this idea of like home and ancestral home and identity, right? Because like, I mean, it's in some ways similar to, I guess, the, you know, the white American in the sense that like they don't have to think about it, right? And so here's this person I guess for me, a Chinese American, for you, a Japanese American who's like interested in this idea of history and and memory, and they're just like, oh, well, you know, we're just Japanese. Like, there's no issue, right? I think a lot of Mm -hmm. Chinese people are like, yeah, "Yeah, you're like really fascinated with this idea as if one shouldn't or as if it's this exotic idea of fascination. I'm not sure which is interesting Mm. for me to kind of listen to Mm. and hear and, and kind Mm -hmm. of digest at the same time.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think this reception, um, the film was actually programmed in a film about the war and it was about different views of the war, which is really fascinating, right? Because they had programmed things from the, I guess Uh, it was stuff that had not been screened before. Right,
0: right, right. It was sort
1: of from their archives. It was propaganda films from, you know, the Japanese perspective. And then my film, Hmm. you know, had sort of U.S.-American, you know, propaganda through Hollywood, I guess, films, plus some snippets of propaganda films that were from Japan that were in the archives that I, you know, cut into the film, right? And so it was kind of like about seeing the war from the different sides, but also through the pers- mm-hmm. the effect of World War II on Japanese Americans, right? So it was a really interesting perspective, I think, and a very profound one. I think I was just too overwhelmed yeah, at the time, but I think it was a very, uh, a very smart and very interesting. I just yeah. don't know if I was able to fully respond, but it was interesting, but, it, but also very formal yeah. and very academic. Yeah very different for me something i wasn't used to
2: yeah how old were you when you when you when i
1: was old enough i was like in my 30s 33 okay but it was really kind of overwhelming i mean just everything combined being in japan yeah. um, having this kind of reception
2: mhm taken
1: seriously which you know
2: yeah i can imagine
1: but i'm grateful i'm really grateful that the film was you know programmed and it was seen in such a interesting forum and programmed in that way it was really important so. yeah
2: Yeah. I can only imagine. Okay. Well, um, so thanks for chatting. I hope you enjoyed this interview.
1: (laughs) I did. I did. And, um, thank you for giving me a second round. (laughs) I appreciate it. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do and catching up after your residency, seeing how it goes yeah. for you—that's uh, it's really
2: exciting. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll keep you in touch, yeah. and then, yeah, we can keep you know we can always keep chatting after you know catch up every now and then. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. let's do that. Let's okay. do that definitely.
2: All right. Um, yep. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye.
0: Seeing color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself. Z1 Chung Original Music by Alex Chow You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle seeingcolorpod If you enjoy this show and have the time I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a 5-star review This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.